You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Axios, Richard, Hartman, The Sextant, Brian, Doc Lindsay, Hangman Strain, AJ, Roger the Jolly, Artemis Killmeister, Captain Crunch, Rotary Coast, MD, Lost Again, The Navigator, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I think we're all aware of that old saying. I've usually seen it attributed as an ancient Chinese proverb. But that old saying, may you live in interesting times. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Kind of a monkey's paw wish. Really, it's it's a curse. Interesting times don't have to be great. They can be terrible. In fact, statistically speaking, they probably are terrible. And I think it's going to come as a surprise to no one when I say that we are right now living in interesting times. The world is changing immeasurably quickly. So fast that we as a species may not be able to keep up with it. Our technological advancement is moving so quickly that we may not be able to control it in the very near future. We've all seen what a virus can do to our society. And make no mistake, they are still working on viruses much stronger than that in labs all around the world. Artificial intelligence could very well become something outside of our control before we even realize we've achieved it. And even if we are able to control our technology, who actually gets to control that technology? I mean, we're already tracked everywhere we go 24 hours a day, and we signed up for the privilege of it. They're building programs that map how we think, and soon enough that tech will be able to anticipate our needs and our desires before we're even aware of them. And with that technology, seems great, right? But we're going to lose our ability to recognize and act upon our own needs. We will become reliant on that tech. The algorithm will be in control. And look, I know that's a lot to lay on you here. I think that that 
all of that is what nostalgia is all about. You know, we remember a time before we were even aware of these kind of concerns, much less had any possibility of control over them. When you ask a question like, hey, remember Muppet Babies? You're remembering a time in your life when Muppet Babies was all that really mattered. Or then again, maybe it's not just that alleviation of responsibility, of, you know, the knowledge of how terrible things can be. Maybe things actually were better back in the day. Some of you will remember the 1990s. Some won't. I'm old enough to do so. I was young, but I remember. I remember being tossed out of the house early on a summer's morning and then just running around all day, riding bikes, having water fights with, well, remember super soakers? Building a clubhouse with the girl that lived across the street, getting into trouble without actually getting into trouble. Nobody knew where we were. I mean, we were just free, right? That's something that kids today, even grown-ups, are never going to be able to really have. And I think about what work was like, at least what it seems like it was to me. You know, the grown-ups where I was growing up had jobs that weren't like high-powered, highly-paid positions or anything, but they were enough to put a roof over your head, to feed you, to give you a pretty good life. And those same grown-ups would work those jobs for years and years. They'd get raises every year and a decent pension. Today, though, work is a nightmare. Nobody stays at any job longer than they absolutely have to because they're always hunting for something slightly better. Because nothing's all that great. It's a work culture in which people are no longer part of a community. They're just another cog in a machine. I mean, could you imagine a world where you actually get to make decisions about your job, where your opinion matters and has real weight, where you have a, a say in what happens to you and what you do? I mean, that would be amazing. Well, what if I told you that I could offer you all of that? You would have a say in your job, a vote in every decision that the company makes. Also, you would no longer be tracked everywhere you go. It would be kind of like being a kid again, back in the 90s. You would be free to do what you pleased, when you pleased, with who you pleased. You could roam the world seeing and doing amazing things every day. You know, Want to go to Vietnam? Sure, let's eat some sticky rice. Take a vote. You wouldn't have to worry about super viruses or nuclear annihilation or, you know, New World Order AI supercomputers controlling your mind. All of that would be in your rear view. And I know what you're saying. That's crazy, right? That's impossible. What's the catch? Well, there is a catch. To make this work, what I'm offering you, you're going to have to steal from people. That's how we're going to earn our living. But... We can be sure to steal only from the right people. The people who deserve it. I think you know who I'm talking about. And if we do it right, you'll be able to make more money than you've ever seen in your entire life. We're going to take those people who deserve it down a peg or two. Sounds pretty good, huh? Well, all you have to do is get on my boat with a few good friends, like-minded people, and sail away from all of it from all the stress, all the pressure, and you will finally be free. This is episode 280, Interesting Times. Now, 
I exaggerated there a little bit, you know, maybe not too much, but I exaggerated. I'm sure most of you were wondering at some point during that tirade what the hell I was talking about. I mean, even if some of it might have sounded kind of cool, you know, it's crazy. You wouldn't jump on a boat to sail into the great unknown and rob people with me, would you? And if you would, call me. That would be crazy. Nobody should live their life that way. But, you know, some people out there, they might. Especially if your situation is pretty bad. I mean, imagine if your boss was, instead of being kind of a controlling jerk, was a psychologically, physically, and sexually abusive sociopath. All the time, where work was literal torment. All day, every day, and there was nothing you can do about it where that was an expected part of the job, and if you had the gall to complain, they had the right to kill you. If that were your situation, and understand, when I say physically abusive, I'm not talking about a rap on the knuckles, and when I say sexually abusive, I'm not talking about saying you should smile more. If that were your situation, and I had a boat where that kind of thing wouldn't happen, you might just get on the boat. You might actually look very, very forward to robbing those people who definitely deserve it. This past couple of weeks, I've been unable to do much research on Captain Kidd. For reasons that I cannot yet divulge, I've been reading mostly about Blackbeard and the Pirate Republic at Nassau. It's been great. You know, Blackbeard's been the focus, but all of that included, like, Ben Hornigold. Sam Bellamy, Steed Bonnet, Mary Reed, Henry Jennings, Calico Jack, Charles Vane, all of the greats from the Flying Gang. But that's kept me from doing much work on Captain Kidd, so we're going to leave Captain Kidd in his jail cell in Boston in the autumn of 1699. And we're going to take this moment to look at what all of those other characters, our future main characters, what they were up to so far in their lives as 1699 approached 1700. And this is an incredibly stupid thing to do. Nearly every biographical sketch of nearly every name that I just mentioned usually begins with something like, we know almost nothing about the early life of, insert famous pirate name here, but we can discuss what we do know. And then, looking at what we know about the world around them, we can look a little bit at what their lives may have been like. And when we're talking about mostly poor and working-class people in the English Empire circa 1700, well, it promises to be a Dickensian maze of torment and woe. What fun. Let's begin here with the oldest, like in age, the oldest of the pirates we're going to be discussing. Paul's Grave Williams was from Rhode Island originally and was born around 1675. That would have made him about 25 years old in 1699. Paul's Grave Williams probably has the most well-documented family history of any of the Flying Gang pirates. His family was one of the most well-known families in America. His grandfather was a man named Roger Williams, one of the you might consider him a founding father of British America. Roger Williams was crazy smart. He spoke half a dozen languages, mostly fluently. He spoke Greek and Latin, Hebrew, Dutch, French, and English. 
It was his propensity for language that led him to a tutor position for a young man named John Milton, the guy who would go on to pen Paradise Lost, universally accepted as one of the greatest works of English literature ever written, even if, you know, Buccaneers of America did kick it off the bestseller list. Roger Williams, by trade, though, was an Anglican preacher, technically. He never really cared much for the Anglican church. When the Puritans began to pop onto the scene, he immediately identified with their brand of Christianity and discovered within himself that he was what they called a separatist, someone who believed that Puritanism should be a separate organization from the Anglican Church. When the first English pilgrims for America left, you know, the Mayflower, he was not on that ship. He kind of waited around to see if they would all die, but once it was pretty clear that they were going to make it, when they had farms and houses and the basic necessities for living, Roger Williams hopped on a ship and came over to America. Roger Williams was extremely important in the early years of Rhode Island. He was part of that clique of super-annoying Puritans that still believed in things like letting everyone speak at their meetings, you know, even women, and also believed in the abolition of slavery and equal rights, you know, real annoying stuff. He would go on to found the First Baptist Church. And not, you know, the First Baptist Church of Springfield or wherever, like the First Baptist Church. There were a ton of what would later be recognized as Baptist congregations in places like Amsterdam, but the church that Roger Williams saw built in Providence, Rhode Island, that's the oldest Baptist church in the world, and arguably the longest-running Baptist congregation in the world. He was a big deal, is what I'm saying. Although he would have said, no, God is a big deal, not me, and then he would have given you a super judgy look. But he's as close to American nobility as we get in that early colonial era. Roger Williams had a number of kids, one of whom was named John Williams. And in 1675, John's eldest surviving son, Paulsgrave Williams, was born. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people 
populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. John Williams died in 1687, when Paul's grave was 11 years old. He left his family in the care of a Scottish exile named Robert Guthrie. It's kind of weird that you have to leave your family in the care of someone else, but that's how it worked. Upon his death, Guthrie was given legal guardianship over his children. And eventually, after his own wife died, Robert Guthrie married Paul's grave's mother. The Williams children, Paul's grave and his two sisters, never much cared for their stepfather. He was part of a radical group of Scottish separatists that lived a sort of a rambunctious, often violent criminal life. So, you know, I love him, but it was probably a bit of an unstable household. And I've got to tell you, I've been waiting years to say the words that I am about to say. In The Republic of Pirates, author Colin Woodard writes, quote, Through Guthrie, Williams likely was introduced to some unpleasant truths about the English conquest of Scotland and some radical notions about who should be sitting on the British throne. End quote. He's saying there that Guthrie was probably a Jacobite, but a very particular kind of Jacobite. You know, sure, you can have that Dutchman on your English throne all you want, but on the Scottish throne, we demand a Stuart. Whether those ideas actually filtered down into Paul's grave William's brain, well, that's a question for another episode. For now, though, it seems that the Williams children did their best to get away from this crazed Scottish revolutionary. When she was still pretty young, I think 15 or 16, his older sister Mary wed a man named Edward Sands, who was about 18 himself. Edward Sands was from Block Island. And I'm sure you remember Edward and Mary Sands as the couple that, in our overall narrative, in 1699, are currently holding on to a huge pile of gold and silver for Captain Kidd, and praying that the governor wasn't going to find out about it. As an aside, totally unrelated, a few years later, the Sand family were going to establish a mint in Boston where they were going to produce the first gold coins ever minted in America. You do have to wonder where they got the gold, though. In addition to Captain Kidd, the Sand-slash-Williams family had another close friend who was tied to the pirate world, Thomas Paine. Now, I described young Paul's grave Williams seeing Thomas Paine for the first time, a dashing buccaneer in an old seaman's coat, a cutlass on his hip, a bandana, and a big, wide-brimmed hat. But the family was closer than just that one chance encounter. Paul's grave Williams' other, younger sister, Mary Williams, would go on to marry Thomas Paine's nephew, also named Thomas Paine. And I'm sure it's just coincidence that this nephew of Thomas Paine's married into the family that owned a mint when the elder Thomas Paine had a big pile of Captain Kidd's treasure he was sitting on that could soon be turned into gold and silver coins of its own. Paul's grave Williams was tied into both Jacobite revolutionaries and pirate nobility from a very young age. As he grew up, he went to work in his family's mint in Boston. Hallsgrave Williams went on to get married and have a son, and worked hard at the Mint to provide for them. 
And that is where we're going to leave Paul's Grave Williams for now. 1699, 25 years old, working diligently in the mint and living the life of a moderately successful New World family man. But here's the thing about privately owned colonial mints in the English Empire. They had to source their own gold and silver. You know, they're not getting precious metals from the king so they can stamp his face on them. That's not how it worked. They aren't tied into the imperial currency scheme, at least not yet. When those colonial mints run out of gold and silver, they need to find more, somehow. And in about 16 years' time, this Boston mint is going to begin to run low on gold and silver. At which point I'm sure it's just coincidence that Paul's Grave Williams is going to buy a ship, hire a crew, and proclaim himself a pirate. But that's for another day. For now, let's move on. After Paul's Grave Williams, we begin to run into the pirates about whom we know a lot less. For example, a pirate who was intricately tied to Paul's Grave Williams for his entire career, Samuel Bellamy. Black Sam Bellamy. Samuel Bellamy was born in Devonshire, in the west country of England. That's home to a ton of mariners and pirates all throughout English history. You know, that's where Francis Drake was from. Devon is bordered in the north by the Bristol Channel, and to the south, the English Channel. They have a rich history of seagoing culture. That traditional pirate voice, Yar, matey, shiver me timbers, that's a Devon accent. Sam Bellamy, although he was born in Devon, he was not destined for a life at sea. Sam Bellamy was born in 1687, the same year that Paul's grave Williams lost his father at the age of 11. He was born to Stephen and Elizabeth Bellamy in a little town called Hiddlesley in the Dartmoor region of Devon. The Bellamy family was poor, you know, not destitute, street urchin poor, but Dartmoor was not a region in which one was going to make much money. It's an inland region of Devonshire. They've got no coastline on which to build ports. Instead, what they have in Dartmoor are the moors, rolling hills stretching as far as the eye can see on which virtually nothing can grow. You could picture a foggy moor from a Sherlock Holmes novel, some of which were actually based here in Dartmoor. To me, they look kind of like some parts of the U.S. Southwest. You know, scrubby patches of grass with a few scraggly trees here and there, and not much else. Only in Dartmoor, it's cold. In 1724, Daniel Defoe published a book entitled Tour Through the Whole Island of Great Britain. And that's a great resource for us. It shows us what... England, Scotland, Wales, what all of the British Isles were like at about the time that the pirates were alive. And he paints in that book a bleak picture of Dartmoor. They could not grow any profitable crops whatsoever. Really, about all they could grow was some barley and potatoes, hardly enough to keep themselves alive, much less sell any of it. The earth in Dartmoor is mostly clay and rocks and peat, not exactly a rich black soil. The grass, even, is so unhealthy they couldn't even raise sheep for the wool, much less bigger cattle like oxen or cows. Really, the best they could do were pigs, which ate waste, and maybe some chickens. 
this is not a region in which you're going to get rich. Unless, that is, you happen to own a tin mine. Those mines in that region of Britain had been the engines of empire since the Romans invaded. They used it mostly to make bronze. The English were using it in articles on board ships, but the Bellamy family did not own a tin mine. Like nearly everybody else in Dartmoor, they were scrabbling out a living on potatoes and eggs, and maybe they sold some barley to the port cities nearby. It was rough. By 1699, Samuel Bellamy was twelve. He was working on his parents' farm, growing barley and potatoes, and that's pretty much it. There's not a lot of story to tell here. You know, it wasn't some kind of nightmarish story of horrific suffering. His parents did okay. They probably did well enough to send Sam Bellamy to school. It appears that he knew how to read, and certainly learned how to operate instruments at sea, like the Astrolab and the Compass. And the very fact that we know who his parents were, and where and when Samuel Bellamy was born, that, you know, that shows that they were members of the community in good standing. They went to church. They probably had usually enough to eat. So it wasn't bad, but it must have been so boring. You know, imagine you're this kid. Put yourself in Sam Bellamy's shoes. You're a 12-year-old boy. Which is pretty easy for me. If we were to transpose 1699 for 1999, I would be about the age of Sam Bellamy here at the end of the century. Which is why I wanted to bring up that stuff about nostalgia. You know, I could go up to people and talk about, hey, Muppet Babies, Super Soakers, wasn't Blockbuster awesome, and I'd sound like a crazy old person, but if I was talking about the time when we were free, before 9-11 changed everything, I might get some people who were unhappy with their situation to listen to my psychotic old man ramblings. Paul's Grave Williams was only 12, here in 1699, but when 1716 rolls around, he could tell them stories like those he heard, in the late 1690s. Stories about how great it could be if we went back to a time like that. You know, if I were to say to you, look guys, we're going to do nothing but drink Surge. We're going to listen to whatever rap rock group is in at the moment, and we're going to play Mario 64 all day long. Now, you might not be too into that, but some crazy kids might be. And, yeah... That's kind of lame. 1999 wasn't great. But the stories that a 12-year-old Samuel Bellamy was hearing in 1699, well, those stories were awesome. All his life, he'd been hearing about the exploits of his pretty nearby neighbors. All of those exciting stories of men going to sea and seeing things that no person from England had ever seen before, tasting foods that no person from England had ever tasted before. Adventurers like Francis Drake were out there conquering the world, and you were digging up potatoes. But then his little village began to hear rumblings of another famous Devonshire son, a man who went to sea and became the richest seafarer that the world had ever seen. They heard about Henry Every. And it was great. I mean, what did this guy do? He stole a ship, he took a crew of his own, and he became a pirate. He robbed the Moors halfway around the world and became the richest English seafarer ever to live 
And what did he do with all of that gold and silver, those pearls and rubies and diamonds? Well, he set himself up as a king on some island called Madagascar. He was living the life of luxury and ease on a tropical paradise filled with warm weather and beautiful women, which, you know, for a 12-year-old boy, that's quite a selling point. Not to mention the food, man. This kid had grown up on potatoes and barley, maybe an egg in the morning. But Henry Every was eating exotic tropical fruits. He was eating roasted beef every night and drinking rum punch that would make your head swim. To hear that story, that amazing story, and then the next morning, you've got to drag your bones out of bed into the cold light of dawn. You've got to spend hours plowing the hardest of scrabble fields anywhere in the world, and it's just, oh, it's the worst. Day in and day out, that's your life. What, I mean, what would you? be dreaming about. We're going to leave it there for today. I did not manage to get to Benjamin Hornigold or Henry Jennings, Charles Vane, Calico Jack, Anne Bonnie, Mary Reed, Steed Bonnet, or Blackbeard, but we'll cover that next time. You know, did I need to spend precious minutes talking about Paul's Grave Williams' famous grandfather or the soil quality in Dartmoor? Yes, I did. Because we have so little about the early life of these people, I want to try to imagine what it may have been like to be them, to think about what was important to them. And for a young Palsgrave Williams, it was his famous grandfather, his family's mint. For a young Sam Bellamy, it was hard scrabble dirt and tales of adventure on the high seas. Beyond that, though, it's beginning to paint a picture of life in the English Empire circa 1700. For our two subjects today, it's not too bad. For one of them, it was pretty good. For another, kind of boring, but not terrible. But as we continue on this journey, things are just going to begin to get worse and worse. And we're going to begin to see why some people might actually listen when some handsome, dashing ship captain offers them a chance to escape. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody that has left us ratings or reviews, they really help get the show out there. And everybody that has recommended this show to your friends and family, you all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, if you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, I can't recommend highly enough Ben Franklin's World. You can find it at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music, as always, was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. There, you can get in touch with me or find links to some of our other, smaller, newer projects. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.
once more the old captain has died let him live on in legend tonight